Well, we are talking about growth as a Christian today. Uh, not so much growth through trials and growth through struggling against the, the flesh, but asking God to grow us, for us to receive from Him that which He said He would do. Paul's going to, in Ephesians three fourteen through 19, he's going to tell the Ephesians what it is he prayed for them, what kind of spiritual growth he wants them to receive from God. Whenever we look at this passage, we need to ask, first of all, what, what did Paul mean when he wrote to the Ephesians? And then, of course, ask how we might apply that to our own life. This is definitely one of those passages, uh, all of Ephesians, really. But this is one where we can benefit greatly from learning about the Christian life and what's expected of us and, and what we should be asking God for as well in our own lives. So if you would, open your copy of God's Word to Ephesians 3. And I'm going to read to you verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Well, let's just ask now that even through this message, the Lord would do that for us. Lord, we do ask that you would give us these things that Paul prayed for. These are promises made to all believers that you would do these things in Scripture if we ask, and it's according to your will then you will indeed give. We ask that you might build us up, that you might grow us in the faith. Help us, Lord. Give us your power and enablement and strength and fullness, Lord. Help us to be Christians for Christ's glory, for his name's sake, and to live and do all the things that you would have us do. We pray this for your name. And in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Growth in the Christian life is for every believer. It's essential for every believer. Jesus said you would know them by their fruits. Jesus said that those planted in good soil who grew up and remained in him would show good fruit. That they would be a hundredfold, some of them even. God's not done with a person the moment they're saved. I know that's a common teaching in churches these days, I, I was in a church and believed that for a while, that we're saved, we're justified, all the work and effort sort of goes into that, and then, well, we're just going to go to church and go on with our life. I didn't actually understand as a young Christian how to apply this big book called the Bible. And so I set it aside and, and didn't touch on it too much until the Lord woke me up seven years later and eventually sent me to seminary and made sure that I studied it the rest of my life. But God's not done with us the moment that we're saved. And the church, because of that, the church is not to be an evangelistic crusade where the whole focus here is just on getting people saved and then telling them to go somewhere else and then getting more people saved and telling them to go somewhere else. This is not an evangelistic event. The church is a gathering of people to worship the Lord because they've been saved, because they've been redeemed, and to grow in the Lord. 
Paul's really going to open that up in chapters 4, 5, and 6. But Christians ought to be growing. There must be growth in the Christian life. Until you meet the Lord. You're constantly growing in the Lord if you're His. You would not expect one of your children, if you have children, you would not expect that they would suddenly just stop growing at some point. It would be very unhealthy. It's very unhealthy for Christians to just stop growing. Imagine we're born into the world and we never grow. That would be a disease. That would be something wrong with us. Imagine Christian is born again and never grows. Never learns something new. Only knows about Christ, faith, and repentance. Which is a wonderful blessing. But even Christ, faith, and repentance can go much deeper than what we first know when we're saved. In fact, the Bible was written for the purpose of God's people to know the way of salvation and to be sanctified. Because if it was just, the New Testament was just about repent and trust in Christ and be saved, it'd be a very short part of our Bible. But there's a lot there for us to grow. We need to know more and we need to do more. Not to earn our salvation, we're already saved, but so that we might grow. In fact, every epistle, every letter written, most of which are written by Paul, are written to churches so that they might better understand God, they might better understand what God has done for us, and better understand how we might live as Christians in this world. It's the whole purpose of Paul's writing Ephesians. So that those who read this letter, first the Ephesians, then other churches, and then throughout the church age, all of the Christians that would open this letter and study it and read it, that we might grow. There's some deep doctrine here. There is some deep doctrine here. And Paul wants us to know these things, and he wants us to live them out. And so there's some strong application in the latter part of this letter. Well, similar to the prayer Paul's already prayed back in chapter 1, he's going to give now another prayer to God for the Ephesians. If you want to look back at 118, he said there, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So he prays there that they would be enlightened, that their, that their minds, that their hearts would be enlightened, that God would open up their hearts, shine His light in there so that they would understand and know about God and know about God's power and know about what God has done for them. It was a prayer of enlightenment. But now in chapter 3, starting in, in verse 14, He's asking not for enlightenment. He's already done that. But He's asking that God would enable them. They know all this doctrine that Paul's been teaching them here in the first three chapters. Now He needs And he's asking that God would enable these believers to live out the doctrine and have the power to do what he's about to write to them in chapters 4 through 6. In other words, you can't do these things of your own power. And so Paul is going to pray that God would give them the ability to do this. And so 3, 14, really all the way through 21, we have a a prayer in 14 through 19, and then 20 and 21 are a doxology, a, a praise to God that we'll look at next week. This is a transition. He's now going to transition from the doctrinal part, which is the theology, to the application part, which is still theology, but it's more of how to live out that theology. It's more commands, imperatives. Chapters 1 through 3 are telling us what it already is, what God has done in the past, who God is, who Christ is. 
4 through 6 is going to tell us now what we should do because of those truths. Practice, in other words, our position in Christ. And so this is a transition prayer. He's going from doctrine to application, and he's going to now pray for them that God would give them the ability to do these things. So I want to look at this in five steps, five points. And he's going to progress each step through this passage. You have to have the first thing is what he's saying before you can get to the next thing. And you'll realize that we're pretty passive in this, but there are some things that we can do. But first of all, we need to just see what's happening. What is he praying for? And then we need to pray ourselves this kind of prayer for us, for our families, for our church. And we also need to ask, uh, and we'll touch on a few points of what we can do to get out of the way so that God can work in our lives. So first of all, I want you to see that spiritual growth, a prayer for spiritual growth is answered by the sovereign father. That's what he starts with in the first couple of verses here. He's going to just teach us before he really gets into the meat of the prayer that this is a sovereign God and not just a God, but our father who will answer these kinds of prayers because he's going to ask a lot, not a lot for God, but from our perspective, how can we ask God for these things? By the end of this prayer, he's basically asking that we would be like God in many ways. How can we ask that? Well, Paul says he's a sovereign God. He says, for this reason. Now, what he's doing is going back to what he started out chapter 3 with. Remember? Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and you'll have a long dash there. Because he goes off track. He gets so wrapped up into what God has done and, and how God's wisdom and the mystery has been shown to the church and the world and even angels. So he goes into that, verses 2 through 13, and now he's coming back. He starts the same way he started in verse 1. And now he gives us the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Maybe he's literally bowing his knees or just saying this figuratively, but bowing your knees and praying and getting on your knees to the Father is a, a good way to pray. It meant in ancient times that you were very serious and passionate about your prayer. Most of the people in the Bible who are praying on their knees are, are very desperate. Uh, they're at the end of what they can do and they're, they're calling out to God. He was serious, Paul was, about praying. Because kneeling is a posture of humility. It's, it's a posture of submission. And it's not necessarily more godly, though. A lot of older churches will have the, the little uh, thing that will flip down so you can put your knees on. And every time you pray, you're supposed to get down on your knees. Actually, people in the Bible prayed more standing up. The most common posture of prayer is standing up, even Jesus and the apostles and in the Old Testament, and facing heaven, sometimes with their hands out like so. That's the most common form. Now, now we... We pray with our hands closed often and our eyes shut and our head down. But that's fine. Paul, though, is saying he's bowing his knees because he is seriously focused on them and he wants them to grow. So he's going to ask God to do something for them. And he, he loves them. He wants to see them grow. He, he loved those believers with all his heart. And he did not want them to continue on as babies in the faith. What parent wants to have their baby just stay a baby? Paul didn't want that. And he saw himself sort of as their spiritual father, even though God is their spiritual father. Ultimately, Paul started this church. He had a, a big hand in the church's early years. 
and he wants them to grow. He, he's going to pray for them. And it's interesting that he asked this, isn't it? Because Paul was there for three years. He was in Ephesus. If you read the book of Acts, he was in Ephesus for three years. And what was he doing? He was teaching them every day. He was said he was going from house to house. He was teaching them the whole counsel of God in a seminary-like experience. Can you imagine going to meet with the Apostle Paul every day? As he's, he said, he was in the school of Tyrannus, and he was teaching them these large crowds of Christians that were getting saved and coming. And I'm sure in three years, he covered a lot of scripture and a lot of theology and application. And yet he still prays that they will grow. He still prays that God would grant them these things so that they could grow. How much more us today? We, we, weren't, we weren't there for three years with the Apostle Paul, who spent three years with Jesus in the desert. We certainly need to grow. All Christians need to grow. So Paul's passionately uh, praying for them to grow in the faith. You know, that's the, uh, the problem with so many bad theologies out there on Christian growth. If you just move away from those who say we shouldn't grow, you get into some really bad teaching on how we should grow. There's a popular teaching called let go and let God. Well, you're just supposed to continue to turn your life over to God and, and sort of let go of your worries. Now, part of that's true. You're supposed to trust in God. You're supposed to cast your cares on Him. But the problem with let go and let God is there's no striving yourself for holiness. There's no working. It's okay to work to honor the Lord as a believer. It's not okay to work for your salvation before you're a believer. That doesn't work. It gets you nowhere. But as a believer, Paul's already told us, we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. He wants us to do things and believe things that glorify Him. So let go and let God, though, says, set back, let God do it. It's very passive. Another common one today is just look back to the cross because you can never be perfect. So when you sin, don't pursue holiness. Don't worry so much about that, but just keep looking back to what Jesus did. And there's truth to that, isn't there? Because Jesus has already died on the cross for all of our sins, past, present, and future. The problem is all the scriptures in the Bible who say strive for holiness. All the writers tell us strive for holiness, pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Not to beat yourself up and think you're going to go to hell every time you sin as a Christian, but to be pursuing holiness. That's what would cause Paul to, to bow his knees before the Father, to earnestly pray for them. We have to watch out for some of these theologies that would almost cancel half of what Paul says to the believers here and, and, and say we're not to worry about pursuing growth in the Christian life. Well, he tells us more about who the Father is in verse 15. Who is this Father? He is a sovereign God. He's a sovereign creator. That's who he is. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The Greek word for family here is, is patria. Patria, and it means a lineage or a clan with a common father. It's very similar to the Greek word for father that's in verse 14. Pater, patria, fatherhood, pater, father. And again, this just means a lineage or a group of families. Now, how it is used in other places, it's only used in two other places, and the way it's used is exactly this way. Luke 2.4, Joseph was of the family of David, patria. Also Acts 3.25, how Abraham's seed will bless all the families, patria, families of the earth. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations in that verse in Acts 3. That 
that God would bless through Abraham the families of the earth, the groups of people that have descended over time from a common ancestor, tribes, tongue, peoples, and nations. So now take that back here and let's see what Paul is saying here. He's saying every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from God. Well, some want to see believers here. There's believers on the earth and there's believers in heaven. But he's talking about where these families originate from. And he's already been discussing the heavenlies. And there's powers in the heavenlies. And then there's those of us on the earth. So the best interpretation here is every family in heaven are groupings of angels. God has created all the angels, whether good or bad. He has named them all because he created them all. And we shouldn't think the angels are related as a family. That's not the idea. The the idea is a, a grouping. And he's already Paul has mentioned groupings of angels. He will do it more in Ephesians 6. Principalities, rulers, powers, authorities, dominions, and spiritual forces. So there are different groupings of angels, not to mention holy angels and demonic or evil angels. All of those are named by God because he's the one who created them. That's the idea. If you're having a child, you get to name the child. It comes from you. It's the same way here, Paul is saying, but even more so with God. And not just the angels, but the families on the earth. These are human groupings, nations, classes of people, even individuals. He's created each one of you, and he's sovereign over each one of you. And over all of your ancestors and over all the people ever created. This is the God that we're going to pray to and ask to grow us in the faith. He's going to answer us, isn't he? That's the point, Paul says. The Father is the source of every family grouping ever created. Don't think that you're going to ask God for something like spiritual growth and then the demons are going to get in the way of that. Don't think you're going to ask God for growth and some person is going to keep you from that. That's not possible. He is sovereign over all things. How can we wonder if God will answer our prayers? How can we doubt Him? As long as our prayers are according to His will, Paul says He will answer them. He will answer them. Secondly, so there's going to be five of these. That's just Paul getting started. He hasn't even gotten into the meat of his prayer, but he wants them to know. He wants us to know God will answer them because he is sovereign. Secondly, he prays that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Strengthened. Given God's power by the Holy Spirit. Do we need God's strength? Do you think you can live the Christian life on your own strength? Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to live the Christian life on your own strength, even for an hour or a day? We just continue to to go right back into sin, don't we? We just continue to lust after the things that our old flesh lusts after. We just continue to be lazy. You know, a lot of us, it's not necessarily chasing chasing sin, but just laziness. I don't want to grow today, God. That's too much work. I don't want to go and meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's too much work. They might ask me questions that I'm not ready to answer. They might bother me too much. I might be convicted by the preaching of the word at church or reading my Bible. Well, Paul's saying, I I pray that God would grant you here strength. This is his first major request in the meat of his prayer here. And he's going to, to build one upon the other. So because God is sovereign, if we ask him, he will grant us this strengthening by the Holy Spirit. He is the God of all creation. Of course, he can do that, and he will do that if it's according to his will. So he's going to grant us these things, Paul says, if we ask him, and I'm praying for you to do that, according to the riches of his glory. 
God is rich. He's rich, not just that he owns everything. I'm not talking about monetary wealth, although that's true, he owns everything. Even our finances, even our things. But this is the riches of his glory. All that he is, all that he's made up of. He's going to grant us these things that Paul asks and that, that we also can ask. And they're going to be in line with his glory. It's, it's important when we look at prepositions here in the scripture, prepositional phrases. It doesn't say God's going to give us out of his glory. He's not taking a chunk out of his glory and saying, here you go, take a piece. He's not saying that. He's giving something to us that's in line with his glory. It lines up with his glory, but it's not directly out of his own glory. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. And so this is the God who has redeemed, who has chosen, who has predestined, who has adopted, who has sealed with the Spirit, all believers. That's the riches of his glory right there. All the things that he's done. Paul's already been talking about that in chapter 1. He mentioned the riches of his glory. Now, he's not asking here that God would give us some special ability, some miraculous power or wonder. He's going to strengthen us so we can live the Christian life and so we can grow and so we can have these other things done to us that he's about to cover in the rest of his prayer. What does it mean to be strengthened? It means to be strong in the mind and heart. To be strengthened. 1 Corinthians 16.3. This is one of the verses I'll tell my, my guys in my Greek class. I quote this verse to them in Greek so they can try to figure out what it says. And Paul uses this same word, strong, strengthen. It says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Like men are physically strong. Be strong spiritually. Be strong. And you need to be strong because Satan's going to come after you. The flesh is going to pull at you. The world is going to pull at you. You're going to want to be lazy. And Paul says, I pray that God would strengthen you. And it's passive, isn't it? He says, to be strengthened. You're not strengthening yourself. You don't get strength from yourself. You don't somehow do some magical thing that gives you spiritual strength. I know there's a lot of books out there that are supposed to tell you the secrets of how to do that. I think there was even one called The Secret. But it says that God would strengthen us. We're passive. We would be strengthened. God is giving the strength. Yes, we play a part in our growth. Paul's going to cover that. He's going to spend three whole chapters on that and the rest of Ephesians. But first, God's got to give us the strength to do those things. Strength comes from God through the means that he gives to us. And it's with power through His Spirit. So it's not just that we're suddenly strengthened. God gives us power and it comes through the Holy Spirit. That's how believers are strengthened. Through the Holy Spirit. Do you know that people want to look for power and strength all these different places? I, I mentioned books. But there are many places that people want to look for power. They want to go into mysticism, even if it's a sort of a, a Christian mysticism. Maybe I can do one of those Enneagram and figure out how to best work my personality and my psychological traits to get more strength in my life. Or maybe I can do other types of mysticism and be with this special group and this Gnostic group. Maybe I can go to the Prosperity Church and they will lay hands on me and give me power. What does Paul say? I'm going to pray for you that God would give you power through His Spirit directly. There's no secret to this. It comes through prayer. It comes through knowing your Bibles well. 
And then that sort of cycle, read your Bible, hear your Bible, pray, read your Bible, hear your Bible, come to church, hear your Bible, preach, pray. And that's one of the main ways that you grow. What does Paul say here? That he wants us to be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Not to do miraculous healings and wonders. No, that we would be strengthened with God's power in the inner man. The inner man, our innermost being, our innermost person. Not the exterior, but the innermost, the spiritual part of us. The mind, the heart, the things that cannot be quantified by science, by medicine. Sometimes the Bible talks about the mind, sometimes it talks about the heart, but generally those are connected and mean the spiritual part of a person. It's your inward, moral, rational faculty, which in the saved person can be in line with God's will. You can be in line with God's will if your inner man is lined up with what God has commanded us to believe and to do. The unsaved person can't do that. They don't want to do that. They're not even able to do that, it says in 1 Corinthians 2. But we can as believers. And Paul's saying, I pray that the Spirit would do this and strengthen you, not your outside body. How many times do we often pray for physical ailments? Not wrong. But if we find most of our time praying for others' physical ailments, there are times when the Bible mentions our physical ailments and how we should pray for them. But more often, a larger percentage of the time, we're to pray for our spiritual struggles, for our spiritual growth. For somebody to be saved. That's what Paul's doing here. Not the outer man, but the inner man. The unsaved person, their inner man is dominated by sin, dominated by the world, dominated by Satan. Our inner person should be dominated by God's Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Though we're getting old, though we're falling apart, though we're hurting, though we're decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So your inner man as a Christian is getting more refreshed and more renewed every day, while your outer man, your tent, is falling apart. Someday we'll get a a new tent, a new body, and it won't be falling apart anymore. But right now, our inner man, Paul says, is being renewed every day as a Christian. We are growing every day closer to Christ. Every believer who submits to God's word and is living by the Spirit is is exercising God's spiritual power in us and our inner man is being strengthened. And we need to pray that God would do this. We know he can answer prayers because he's sovereign and he will do it, he can do it. Why aren't we praying for more growth here in our individual lives, even as a church? More depth in our understanding and living out of Scripture. The inner man can be strengthened through God's Spirit. Thirdly, thirdly, Paul continues. So now that you have God's sovereignty, being able to answer your prayers, pray for strength. That's what he did. But also he prays that we would be indwelled, number three, indwelled by Christ in the heart. Verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't Jesus already dwelling in our hearts? Doesn't Jesus come into our hearts immediately when we're saved? What is Paul doing here? Has he forgot his theology? Has he forgot what he's taught in other letters like Romans and Corinthians about how Christ dwells in us the moment we're saved? 
No, every, every believer is indwelt by Christ from the moment they are saved. And we're in Christ, and he's in us, and the Spirit's in us. And, and the Father, he even says, will make his abode with us. No, every believer is indwelt by Christ, but this is something different. The, the word translated here from the Greek, we, we carry over into English to dwell, but it means to live in a place in an established or settled manner. It's not a temporary dwelling place, but it's, it's settled. It's established. Paul's praying that Christ would be settled and established in your hearts, in your lives. He's not asking that Christ would come into the believer for the first time. He's saying that Christ would make his home there and he would be comfortable. That he would be content there. That you're strengthened to the point where Christ would be comfortable there. That he wouldn't have to go through the house rearranging everything to suit his needs. Because you've allowed it to already be done in your life. The idea that Christ would be content because the surroundings have been made comfortable for him. Your, your heart, your spiritual inner person is such that Christ would want to dwell there. And if it's not, then he'll still come. And he'll still work on cleaning it out, of course. God cleanses us when we repent and we seek him. But we, we want to allow Christ to dwell in our hearts in such a way that he's comfortable, that he's satisfied, that he doesn't have to do that constant remodeling. But he often does, of course. That's not Paul's focus here, though. This is similar to Revelation 3.20. Jesus is speaking to believers in Revelation 3.20. This is an often misquoted verse used to talk about evangelism. He's talking to believers. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So there's this uh, metaphor of a house here. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. They're already believers. He's not talking about, if you want to be saved, then just let me in the door and I'll come in and save you. He's saying, as you go through the Christian life, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. And if you want me to dwell contently, comfortably in your house, in your inner man, then let me in. He's not asking for permission. It's just an analogy. He's just saying, like somebody standing at your door knocking, I'm right there. Now live in such a way that I want to come in and dine with you and spend time with you. Paul talks about in Corinthians how, uh, how can Christ be with a prostitute? If somebody goes and commits that kind of sin as a believer, you, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that because Christ is in you. So the prayer Paul is saying is here, we, we might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that Christ would be at home in us. We would be Letting him control our lives. He is the controlling factor of our lives, our attitudes, our actions, our emotions, everything as we live in this world. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ controls us. It hems us in and only lets us go one way, and that's a good thing. We love that. That way we don't stumble off the path. Christ is controlling us. He's living peacefully in my heart. He likes it there because I'm letting him rework me and renew me day by day. When Christ is deeply indwelling us, we, we want to live fully for him. And, and others will know it. Others will see it. Others will see that fruit and they'll know Christ is in that person. And it'll be hard to fool somebody if you're truly living for Christ 
what you do and say and, and feel and what comes out of you will match up with your profession of faith. We must continue to, to let Christ uh, live in us and even remodel parts of us so that he wants to be there in an established way. Not that Christ would fully leave us, but we can do things, it says, to quench the Holy Spirit. We can do things as Christians to displease God. That doesn't put us in hell forever, but it does bring discipline on our life. Just read Hebrews 12. We've got to live according to the Spirit so that Christ may have more control over how our lives are lived out. Is your, your life one that Christ would be comfortable? Content? Are, are, are you living in such a way and loving in such a way the Lord that He's dwelling in you richly? Not asking if you're perfect. Just get that thought out of your head for a moment. We, sometimes we default to that too much. This prayer is not about perfection. It's about growth. He knows we're not perfect. Let's just set that aside, and now let's actually talk about growing in the faith, Paul says. Romans 12, I like this verse for the picture here. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. That's passive. So don't let the world force its way into your life and conform you, but be transformed. Again, passive. Transformed by who? By God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let us know that God is sovereign. Let us be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by Christ. Notice the Trinitarian formula, just like we saw in chapter 1, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity working for us, in us, for us to grow. Now Paul's going to move to the next step in his prayer request. He says that those who are deeply indwelled by Christ have understood the love of Christ. They will and have understood the love of Christ. This is 17, the rest of 17 through the first part of 19. We need to understand Christ and specifically his love. Which Paul's going to say really can't fully be understood, but we ought to always seek to understand it. We need to understand the love of Christ. We need to pray in this way to understand the love of Christ which is the fourth step here. You know how specific Paul is with his prayers? Have you noticed that? When you look at the prayers of Scripture, and especially the Apostle Paul, how specific he is? Now there's times when we don't have words, right? And the Spirit prays for us. But if we can be specific, that's better. God knows all things. We don't even need to say anything, and God already knows all things. But he wants us to think through what we're asking and be specific. And that's what Paul's doing here. So we need to understand, and he says we've already understood the love of Christ. And that you, so picking up in 17, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Past tense, these things have already happened. Rooted is a, a Greek agricultural term. It means that the idea of a plant taking deep root in the soil. It's, it's firmly rooted. It's not going to be blown around by the wind and be pulled out. It's not going to have a little animal 
a little rat come along and knock it out of the ground. It's, it's deeply rooted. So that it's going to firmly be held there, immovable by the forces that come against it. Then he says grounded. Grounded is an architectural term here in Greek. So we have agriculture, we have architecture here. And it's the idea of a foundation. It's a foundation of a building, of a house. We've already saw the noun form back in 220. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. They are the foundation with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Now he says you've already been rooted. You've got deep roots in Christ's love. And you've been grounded. You have a strong foundation. You've been firmly established. The foundation's not going to fall. The roots aren't going to come out. That's, That's already been taken care of. And it's in Christ's love. Some want to see believers love here, but I think it's the context is Christ's love. Christ's love for us. He saved us, and his love is that soil that he plants us in and puts us way down deep with roots. Or you might say, he's saved us, and he's laid the foundation, lined up with himself on good soil, the soil of his love. This is because... God has chosen us, Paul said already, chapter 1. He's predestined us. He's put us in the beloved. He's redeemed us. He's made us a heritage. He's led us with the Spirit. He's made us alive, chapter 2. He's raised us up with Christ in the heavenlies, chapter 2. We are now put equally, equally, all of us equal into the new creation, the new man, the body of Christ. That's how he's grounded us. That's how he's rooted us. And so because of that, because we've been rooted and grounded in Christ's love, we can comprehend something. Verse 18, you might be able, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. He'll go on to describe what that is. Let's just stop there. The ability to understand, that's what he wants us, to comprehend the love of Christ. I thought we were already grounded in the love of Christ. We are. Can you really tap the extent of the love of Christ? No, you can't because he's about to describe the extent of the love of Christ. But we can be growing in our knowledge of the love of Christ. We can be growing in our comprehension and understanding of Christ's love for us. It's something that God grants to every believer. Knowledge of Christ. Knowledge and understanding of Christ's love. That's what Paul's been talking about, basically, the whole book so far. That Christ loved you if you're his. That he came into the world to die for you. That he took on the wrath of God for you and redeemed you and bought you. He was your atonement, your propitiation. Big theological terms, but that's comprehending some of the love of Christ. Major things we need to know. We may not make use of that knowledge like we should. We may harden our heart against it sometimes, but God has granted to everyone that ability. He says, with all the saints. That's every believer. Christians, holy ones. Remember, saints in the Bible are just people redeemed, people who are following God. Those who are holy ones, Paul says. Even though we're not all perfectly holy, we're called holy ones. And he says, with all believers, with all believers, that God may grant you that ability, every single one of you, to comprehend Christ's love. Not just seminarians, not just pastors, not just elders, not just Bible teachers, everyone. The newest Christian. The Christian that struggles the hardest to understand the Bible. 
Paul's saying, I, I pray that God would, would give you these things all the way to understanding the love of Christ, which is no small thing to understand. We can. We can grasp more and, and more of it. Well, doesn't knowledge puff up? I had a guy tell me once, I was t- telling him about the Bible, and he was asking me questions, and he was coming into our new church plant, and he said, why, why do we go into doctrine so much? Doesn't knowledge puff up? Didn't Paul say that? Of course, I wanted to remind him that that is a doctrine that Paul's teaching on knowledge and puffing up, but he's talking about knowledge for knowledge's sake. If you think you're so smart in Scripture that you pat yourself on the back and look down your noses at everybody else, you're just puffing yourself up. You know, these prophets in the early church, they could think they were really great because God was speaking through them. And these tongue speakers in Corinth, well, they really thought they were special. So Paul comes in there and he lays it down for them and he says, you know what, you're not as great as you think you are. Knowledge can puff up. But here, he's praying that we would know more, that we would comprehend, that we would understand. So it can't be a bad thing. This is a good thing. Knowledge used rightly for the glory of God is a good thing. Never feel embarrassed that you want to know the Bible better. Never feel like people might make fun of you because you want to know doctrine better. So what if they do? Let the world be the world, but we're going to follow Christ, and Christ taught things, and he put his apostles on this earth to teach things, and we're going to study those things to be better followers of Christ. That's a good thing. We care about doctrine because it's in the Bible. Well, what does he want us to comprehend? What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Comma. He doesn't have any noun there to tell us the the breadth and length and height and depth of what? What is it, Paul? If it's so important, why don't you tell us? So there's nine or ten different things that people throw out there. But if we just keep reading, and to know, so he wants us to comprehend the the measurements, what Charles Spurgeon says, the heavenly geometry, and to know the love of Christ. What, what is this height and breadth and length and width? It's the love of Christ. How great the love of Christ is. He wants us to comprehend. He's praying for believers to do that. How great is Christ's love? What has he done for us? Who is Christ? What did he do in his ministry on the earth? What's he going to do in the future? Basically, everything there is to know about Christ, that you would comprehend that. And we can only go to Scripture for that. We're not, we're not expecting to get revelation outside of Scripture in this life, of course, but we go to Scripture and Paul says, I pray that you will understand more and more about Christ, who He is, His love for you, His love for His church. He's going to tell us in chapter 5 that Christ died for His church. He gave Himself up for His church because He loved His church. That's what we need to understand. What does that do for us? Well, it makes us live a more holy life. makes us not want to sin. makes us want to tell others about the love of Christ. There are many things. But he's not getting into that right now. He's just saying, I pray that God will let you comprehend it. And then he throws in a little paradox. Verse 19. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Not the love of believers here, although that's important, but the love that Christ has for us, for each believer. Paul's asking God, help us understand not only the geometry, the measurements of Christ's love, which can't really be measured, but he's trying to put a picture on it for us, but also know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Know something that surpasses anything you can know. 
He's asking us to know something that surpasses all knowledge. But think about what he's saying. Even though the love of Christ is beyond complete knowledge, complete perfect understanding, we can grow in that. Every day we can grow more in knowing Christ and his love. We can grow in that. That's the whole point. Don't just give up. No, you have to keep growing in the faith, learning about the love of Christ. There's a Chinese proverb that says, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. Second best time to plant a tree? Today. So maybe you haven't been growing in Christ. Uh, Maybe you haven't comprehended and even tried to, uh, to know the love of Christ. When's the best time to start? Well, when you were first saved. But if there's some time gap, which there was in my life, it's okay. Start today. And, and some of us try to play catch-up and try to just consume as many good books and sermons and online stuff as we can. But you can work at it each day, not to earn your salvation. That's already been done by Christ on the cross, but to continue to grow in your knowledge of Him. Now, lastly, after all of that, after you've been reminded of a sovereign God, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by Christ, and understanding the love of Christ, he just summarizes it all here and says, filled up by God. Verse 19, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, fullness here is the idea of completeness, the absence of anything lacking, just like God is. What's the fullness of God? It's perfection. It's completeness. Paul's saying that since we have been granted by God all these things, because of that, God will fill us up to his fullness. To his fullness. What's God's fullness? Well, the fact that he's morally excellent, that he's holy, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. Paul's saying that I pray that God would fill you up to that point. All his communicable attributes, the the, the attributes that he has that we can be like, his power, his wonderful, holy perfections. And you might say, well, there is no possible way that's ever going to happen. What does Paul say? That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Yes, God is perfect and he's completely full. So how can we be like that? Well, we can be filled up to the point that God fills us up to. That's the whole point. We're never going to be like God. We're not going to be made little gods like prosperity preachers teach or the Eastern Orthodox Church teaches that we'll be deified as believers in heaven. No, we won't be gods. But God will pour into our life all of the good and holy attributes that he has. And he will make us like him. He's not taking out of his fullness He's filling us up to the level, it says, of all the fullness. We're not going to be little gods, but we can move every day towards that goal as these things happen in our life. Now, what can we do? This seems pretty passive, right? We know that God is sovereign, but he's going to strengthen us. Christ will dwell in us. There are certain things we can do to get out of the way for that to happen. And now Paul's going to open all of that up in chapters 4 through 6. What can we do? Now that he's prayed that this will happen, what do I do? Chapters 4 through 6, we'll cover that. So make sure you're here over the next few months as we cover those chapters. Let's ask God to do this for us right now and that he might indeed accomplish these things in each of our hearts. Father, we know you're sovereign. We know you can answer our prayers. 
We don't have the strength that we need. Strengthen us. Strengthen us through your spirit. Help each one of us to love you, to love Christ, to submit to the spirits working in us. Lord, I pray that you would have Christ dwell in us all the more. Make him comfortable in our hearts, in our inner man. Let us love him so much and want to live for him that we're, we're ready for him to control our life. Whatever he tells us to do, let us do it. Lord, let us understand even more, something that is beyond comprehension, but let us understand the love of Christ, his love for us, how he loved you, Father, and, and came to accomplish your mission, but how much he loved us, that he would give himself up for us, rotten, dead sinners, worms that we just sang earlier, and yet he died for us. And because of all that, Lord, Fill us up to all your fullness. We'll never be perfectly like you, but we can grow and grow and grow to be more like you every day. We pray that you would do that in each of our lives and in the corporate body of the church here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.